It seems like you know after the initial novelty of this technology wears off amongst the public, every single story that comes out, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, is sort of sensationalistic. It, you know, it's mm-hmm. a it's about a gun. It's about um, these weapons that you can 3D print. I'm wondering if you think that anything, at this point, anything that brings helps bring this into public consciousness is a good thing. I, I don't think that uh, all news is good news and all press is good press. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's not that uh, we need to in any way hide or defend from... Uh, the bad press, but I think that it serves to add to public confusion. Mm. And, you know, I think that the uh, impact and the scope of 3D printing and its its opportunity to touch every part of our lives is so profound in terms of the unimagined and the unintended that uh, it's going to be hard enough just explaining that and getting the public to uh, fully comprehend it, let alone confuse it with all the sensationalism and hype and noise that uh, doesn't really serve, you know, the public interest. The, the, I mean, these are, are these legitimate concerns, though. Well, I, I think that uh, I think that there are legitimate concerns in 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 the sense that it's very difficult for the uninitiated today to separate substance from hype. Mm-hmm. And the reality is there are lots of amazing uh, yeah. applications in the mainstream that nobody talks about, like uh, energy conservation uh, on board uh, jetliners and uh, the uh, tens of thousands of people that get personalized surgery because of medical modeling and uh, you know the the potential impact on our entire healthcare system as a result of better outcomes in all patient specific medical treatments or the opportunity to improve personalized nutrition in the next few years and what might that look like mm-hmm. and uh, you know instead we're talking about guns and tchotchkes and and uh, you know other kinds of uh, sensational bits of news that are Interesting and intriguing, but don't necessarily prepares us prepare humanity for mm-hmm. what's to come. The, the tchotchkes sort of have to be part of the conversation if we're going to talk about the mainstreaming of three D mm-hmm. printing, right? Yes. This becoming a consumer technology yeah. that's that's got to be part of the dialogue. Absolutely, but but uh, together with that, let's also have a dialogue about sustainability. Mm-hmm. Let's have a dialogue about uh, a responsible education. How do we impart tomorrow's learning to today's kids so that they can do more than just the tchotchkes? How do we turn the, the tchotchkes into learning opportunities yeah. and learning moments, including uh, the, the responsible recycling and sustainability? Th- those are the parts that, for me... Uh, are necessary and required kind of in phase two. You know, we finished uh, 3D printing 1.0, now we're into 2.0. How do we begin to elevate the dialogue and begin to look at all sides of of the issues and, and begin to, to not only give voice but take action? So let, let's back up a second. What What is... What was 1.0 and what, what does 2.0 look like? Well, so I, I think that, you know, to me, uh, 1.0 was the 30-year journey in, mm. in, in the desert of mm-hmm. complexity and uh, expensive machinery, uh, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's been almost 31 years since Chuck Hall invented and yeah. printed the first part. So it was, it's sort of uh, 1.0 and, you know, I guess we could make a pretty good analogy to 
the the home PC yeah. revolution, right? It's those yeah. it's those giant computers that took up full airplane hangers, yeah, and and punch cards mm-hmm. and all kinds of things that you know didn't exactly uh, permitted access and democratization. And and with two point uh, the way that I see it is uh, one fab grade machinery uh, all the way to high speed production. Mm. Uh, a la the system that we're developing for Google now that will crank out thousands of units every day of fully functional parts with multi-materials and customization and conductive... Le- th- th- well, that's, so that's one element. Well, the, and, that's, and that's, I mean, that's interesting because I, I think that's a good distinction to make. Um, you know, I think most people have a conception that um, 3D printing is being used by, you know, Boeing, by Nike, but I don't think they understand what part of the process it's playing. So they're not... At this point, you know, they're not really mass-producing products for public consumption. They're in, prototyping in, largely. In some instances, they are. Mm. Uh, Boeing, indirectly through some of their suppliers today, uh, actually puts uh, thousands of parts mm. on board, primarily uh, military uh, airplanes. And to a lesser extent, you know, if you look at uh, the Dreamliner, uh, it has uh, printed parts on it mm. as well. Uh, so some of those companies are mass producing. Others are gearing up to do it. You know, if you look at uh, what Nike is doing, you know, they're beginning to uh, uh, shine the spotlight on uh, what might personalized uh, cleats look like. Right? Mm. Look what they just did at, at, at the Super Bowl recently. For the first time, they optimized the shape and the size of the cleats to each player yeah. to, to get individualized, personalized performance. That begins to shape and inform maybe the future of athletic footwear. Uh, GE, you know, who's uh, plowing billions of dollars into this, certainly intends to put lots of parts onto their uh, next-generation lip engine, uh, and we're a big part of that. Uh, and there, the savings are going to be substantial. You know, they're they're talking about something like fifteen uh, percent uh, fuel saving, which translates to, to to millions of dollars, you know, per airplane. Uh, those are serious applications. Uh, lo- look at what we do in uh, patient-specific uh, medical device with companies like uh, Conformis in New England that basically now prints the entire surgical toolkit for each and every full knee replacement that they do. They, they will make for you personalized surgical guides in uh, fixtures and jigs from your data, directly from your data. But, but none of these are really, I think, quite examples of mass production yet, right? I mean, this, this, this isn't, you know... Every, every uh, how, do you, how, do you, how do you characterize mass production? You know, I, 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 I suppose I'm thinking, you know, you know like a phone, a phone which mm-hmm. is something you're working towards, yeah. it's a good example of, you know, millions... And so millions so of you mean consumer goods? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so that's, a, that's at the heart of the project that we're doing with uh, Google, the, the black phone, the R phone, which mm-hmm. is all about cranking out in uh, mass personalized phone components and modules that are going to be 3D printed, not just as the cover and the skin, but functional modules with multi-materials mm-hmm. in multi-colors, including the conductive elements in them. So the, uh, the, it sounds like the conversation you have to have with, with these companies is this isn't just replacing the conveyor belt. I mean, this is, this is a chance for you to rethink your in approach in general. And it starts with design. Hmm. Uh, because, you know, we have been constrained by uh, decades, if not a century, of what we call design for manufacturing. Uh, 
design for manufacturing is full of constraints. Uh, you can't make it this way because you can't CNC machine it. You can't make it the other way because it doesn't flow well in the mold. Uh, you can't create complex shapes because you can't form them, bend them, injection, mold them, machine them. And so you spend uh, years learning all the things that you cannot do in the name of conforming to traditional manufacturing methods. Those are the very lessons that we have to unlearn in order to fully unleash the potential of the freedom of creation and the free complexity that comes with 3D printing. It's, it's got to be hard for them to wrap their heads around if they've been doing it in a certain way for so many years. It sure is. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, these are the elements of uh, bondage of self, if you will, mm-hmm. in, in a design sense, because we've been constraining ourselves for decades. Uh, and uh, what we're trying to do through lots of uh, new examples is to begin to uh, educate uh, existing generations and new generations of design engineers to begin to think that complexity is free, there are no constraints, and you can design for performance, mm. you can design for efficiency, you can design for uh, utility, you don't have to confine yourself into the old sandbox of design for manufacturing. It's This is interesting because it seems like this is one of the major elements that, that's missing from... Um, from online commerce because everything up to the point of, of you actually buying that product, you have full customization over, right? I mean, you can go online, you can pick things out to a certain amount, you can go to the stores, buy exactly what you want. It's not quite like going to a brick and mortar store and, you know, having five things on the shelf. But the one thing, the one thing that's missing is that sort of, you know, that last stretch of customization, and this is what you're trying to offer. Yeah, but, but let's even take it, uh, in the, forget about uh, customization for mm. vanity's sake. I mean, <laughs> let, let's talk about practical things. Uh, do you know the size of the bridge of your nose? Do you know the distance between your temples? Uh, if, you, if you need any kind of eyewear, mm. why wouldn't you want to have mm-hmm. your eyewear fit perfectly on the bridge of your nose and in the distance between your temples. But nobody today would even talk to you in that language. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any reason why we can't innovate and individualize eyewear frames to a point that they fit you perfectly? Uh, and they don't either stick you know, on top of your nose or slide down. Yeah. Uh, and you know, what about shoes? Uh, you know, we all think that we know the size of our shoe, right? Mine is eight and a half medium. Mm -hmm. But it's not true. I don't know the size of my shoes because I don't know the size of my feet because Mm. each one of my feet is unique Mm -hmm. and it has a special shape. The Industrial Revolution conditioned me to think that, you know, I will generally fit into a certain size. Mm. But it's not made to measure and it creates a great deal of discomfort. And so there are lots of, even before we get to vanity and, and co-creation and customization for the sake of, of style and fashion, there are lots of meaningful applications to enhance quality of life, you know, through the simple things yeah. that we have been conditioned to think are, you know, off the rack. That, that, that's a, I mean, that's, that's, that's a way that I, I, it's an interesting way to contextualize it. I hadn't really thought of that before and, you know, like... Uh, Brie Pettis's big thing is the sort of at-home industrial revolution, but you're you're talking about in, in a certain sense, um, in some some respects, going back to before the industrial absolutely. revolution, before mass production, uh, absolutely, my, before my, one size my, fits all. My grandfather yeah. was a cobbler, 
And I only know that because my father told me the story. <laughs> I, n- I never met my grandfather because he perished at, uh, at the Holocaust. But uh, my entire childhood, my father used to tell me how he as a kid used to stand in his, in his father's you know, shop and watch him make one-of-a-kind unique shoes made to measure. Mm. The Industrial Revolution eradicated those you know, uh, skills yeah. and, and, and atrophied them to a point that today most people wouldn't know where to begin. And 3D printing, you know, can usher in a new era, a new renaissance, not of real craftsmanship, but of digital craftsmanship. I mean, 3D Systems has been on board with 3D printing since the beginning. I mean, you know... Chuck in invented it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, was was that part of the plan all along? Was that the driving force behind the technology? Was you know, when 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 Chuck uh, had the idea to uh, make a three D printing, uh, make a three D printer, uh, his uh, call to action was he wanted to help Detroit make better cars faster. I mean, think about when he was doing it. He was doing it during a period that uh, it took years for Detroit to design a new car. Mm. The quality wasn't all that good. The Japanese were knocking, sure. you know, at, at 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 the doors and they had superior quality. And Chuck, you know, his idea was I will give Detroit better design and prototyping tools so that they could be more competitive. And in mm. fact, you know, our first customers were companies like General Motors. Uh, and then, you know, very quickly, General Electric and so on. So that was his vision. You know, his vision was, I want to empower engineers to do things better and faster. It was only later in the last decade that we started talking about, you know, how do we uh, create tools that could actually democratize craftsmanship in the mm. digital sense and democratize the access because they'll become affordable enough so that everybody at home will will use it. And, you know, even when we talk about the the unintended consequences like guns, uh, my take on it is big deal. If I was a gunsmith, I could have made a gun a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. And people did, you know, with their hands and on a lathe and on a CNC machine. Uh, The big deal about the fact that that, uh, even a Cody Wilson can make a gun is that the craftsmanship has been digitized and democratized because chances are if you put him in front of a milling machine, it may be harder for him to do it. So but the, the prototyping was that was the original vision was the original vision models? was the original vision for Chuck was you know he he thought in fact it was on Good Morning America in 1989 <laughs> and and his vision was this will be as ubiquitous as the Xerox machine yeah. is and it will allow you to design prototype and manufacture and in fact very quickly uh, some of the very early uh, applications were already into patterns for manufacturing so he's on good morning america in 1989 you know it's, it's 2014 and all these people are hearing about this technology for, for the, the first, first time. time what happened well what, what happened is what happens to uh, technologies that are sometimes decades ahead of the enabling infrastructure when uh, chuck set out to uh, build his first stereolithography 3D printer. Uh, A CAD seat uh, costed more than $120,000. It required supercomputers. It took years to become proficient in 3D solid modeling. And there was absolutely no connectivity 
between CAD and what Chuck was doing, and he couldn't even get the CAD companies interested <laughs> at the time. So he actually, uh, his second big invention was the STL file format that allowed him to grab you know, the point clouds from every solid model and actually communicate mm. to a 3D printer. And what was amazing about what he did, I mean, think about this. This is like 26, 27 years ago. Nobody even know, knew at the time how to say open source. Chuck gave it to everybody mm. because he felt that he needed to create the ecosystem and the infrastructure. And it took about 30 years of meandering in the high-tech complexity desert to get to a point where now we have tools that are mature, sophisticated, fab-grade, functional, and affordable. And this, to me, is the beginning of what I call 3D Printing 2.0. So yeah, at the outset of 3D Printing 2.0, um, I, I, I haven't done a count in a while. Last time I checked, this was a full year ago. I, I counted at least you know 30 companies. I think it's probably double that right now, creating these at-home desktop 3D printers. Um, is it an embarrassment of riches? Is it possible that, again, because you, when we're having this conversation about um, cheap toys and if that's the first thing that people think of when they think of 3D printing, if they're not thinking of guns, um, is it possible that there's there's too many companies out there producing these products? A- absolutely, and and that will kind of uh, sort itself out. I mean, if, if you uh, study uh, the history of the uh, American uh, automobile, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the early days, there were yeah. lots of uh, car companies that popped because it was uh, a technology that was beginning to, 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 to gain ubiquitousness and uh, the early patents, you know, kind of expired, and and people understood that if they could put uh, an engine and, and a transmission and four wheels, you know, they will get a horseless carriage. And uh, there was a period of time where you know there are lots of moms and pops, uh, automotive mm-hmm. companies. Most of them did not survive. Uh, the real story in 3D printing today is about manufacturing, and it's about the relocalization of manufacturing mm-hmm. in ways that turns economy of scale on its head because you pay the same for one as you would pay for a million. It's kind of the inverse of how you think about mass production. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the real story and it has real impact and real benefits, which economical benefit, which is why the big companies are pursuing it. The even bigger story is that at the same time the GE is is thinking of putting uh, 3D printed parts on the next slip engine, Companies like uh, Planetary Resources, which is uh, a space exploration mm-hmm. startup, was able to do something that NASA could never do. You know, they've reduced weight from hundreds of pounds to dozens of pounds. They reduced part count from thousands of parts to less than 20 parts. And they reduced cost for the first space probe that they're going to launch later this year from hundreds of millions to under 2 million. All of that is driven by 3D printing. So the big news is it's, it's about manufacturing, it's about real savings and performance, and it's no longer available just to the deep-pocketed companies. Well, that's... I, uh, the, would, the home yeah. use will come. Okay. There's no question in my mind. Yeah. Uh, and the home use will come through the right applications, 
uh, just like you know, PCs came to the home mm-hmm. when 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 Google search engines happened and other type of online shopping and social and word so processors. On. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that will happen. And and uh, I think the question is not will it happen or when it happened, but how will it impact my life? What room in my house will it fit into? Just like the microwave and other devices. Uh, that will happen, and that will certainly spur you know uh, cottage industries and localization. But to me, the most exciting part today is the impact on manufacturing, the opportunity to return to localized distributed manufacturing, and secondarily to that, the impact on healthcare. But Those are going to be huge. I mean, it sounds like you're saying, and and I certainly don't disagree with you, but it sounds like you're saying that, you know, that everybody's looking for the killer app, that that killer app for home 3D printing has not arrived yet. The killer app for home 3D printing has not arrived, and I don't think that it will arrive. I think that it will be a series of interesting apps Mm -hmm. that together in the aggregate will induce people to bring it home. Uh, Just like, you know, I'm not aware of a killer app for a tablet, but it's it's part of my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm not aware of a killer app for my smartphone, but it became more than just a telephony device. Are those elements in place right now? We're putting the elements mm-hmm. uh, in place. You know, I I believe Brian that uh, the best way to uh, predict the future is to make it right. Yeah. And so we're putting you know we're kind of putting our our money you know where our passion and where our hearts are. So we've created. Uh, a whole series of consumer products, you know, mm-hmm. starting from the new Cube 3 that's coming to the market, you know, very soon under $1,000, physical photography that we talked about recently, uh, and we can't make them fast enough because people really get it. Uh, and uh, other uh, interesting, uh, more prosumerish new experiences mm-hmm. like the Chef Jet. Uh, that allows you to print in chocolates and, 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 and candy-like sugars for pastry chefs and, and, and bakeries and restaurants. Uh, those are going to be meaningful applications that the consumer will enjoy, the consumer will expose themselves to. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you, just judging by the reaction to our edibles, uh, it may be uh, one of the most uh, exciting ways to accelerate awareness and adoption at home. Just the understanding that the things that people are getting at home were created on these devices, yeah. you think they're going to want to bring them into their home? Absolutely. Is, is, the, is the application that we're working towards, I mean, it sounds like the application that we're working towards that a lot of people have projected is this idea of, again, ordering something online and printing it up at home. Is that? Do you think we're working towards that? that I, I, I think that that will happen, but I also think that this is uh, the limit of our linear thinking. And, uh, you know, we, we, we tend to look for analogies and metaphors and comparables from other fields. That's not typically how things happen. You mm. know, things happen exponentially, mm-hmm. which means that you see a linear curve for a long period of time. All of a sudden you see, yeah. you know, the, the band... And, and, and the steep adoption curve. Uh, and most of us mere mortals are only capable of watching the trend as it happened, and we think that it's painfully slow, and we think that some of these are crazy. You know, some of the best ideas that ever happened, people deemed crazy until five mm-hmm. minutes before they take off. Uh, so, you know, my sense is that it's happening. Uh, the adoption is real. The awareness is increasing. 
the affordability and utility are improving. The applications are real. And, and what's most unique about 3D printing is that you know, it's not uh, a technology that is confined only to one category, one segment, mm-hmm. or one uh, set of applications and use cases. It has broad, endless applications all the way, you know, kind of cradle to grave, you know, from... from you hus- can print your cradle, from, from, you can print your grave. Yeah, all, all <laughs> and, you know, food, healthcare, yeah. transportation, recreation, you name it. And I think that the reason that people uh, are talking so much about uh, home use is because they get it. They understand it. They can see themselves in the picture. Uh, we're not doing enough to educate the public about the, 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 the more... Uh, impactful, meaningful, and important applications that we discussed earlier, like healthcare and yeah. aerospace and automotive. And well, so on. well ed- I mean, ed- you mentioned education before, and that's that's really interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, Microsoft, Apple are good examples. Again, to use an analogy from another space, but are good examples of of companies realizing that you've got to get these in in the hands of kids. And and those, at least in retrospect, those are pretty clear applications as far as um, what role those are playing in education. You know, word processing, mathematics, now the internet, everything else. Um, what lessons are you actually teaching these kids on 3D printing that they're going to take with them? So I think that the, 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 the first lesson is how to experiment and fail. Right? I mean, you know, in, in, in uh, Silicon Valley, the, there is a saying that says if you're in your late 20s and you haven't failed a few times, <laughs> you're a nobody. Uh, but, but there is a lot to it in the sense that uh, we don't teach enough young kids, you know, the passion of discovery, which means every failure gets me closer to success. Mm. And uh, the, the passion of creating and iterating. And 3D printing can actually bring those ideas to, into, into tangible life yeah. in a physical sense. And it's uh, easier to fail on a 3D printer And in it's a way. fun. It's easier to <laughs> fail and yeah. it's fun to fail and it's physical. You can touch it. You can see where you fail. Yeah. Uh, you can begin to teach collaboration skills and teamwork and communication and self-expression and art. You can begin to bring uh, more abstract uh, ideas like geometry and Mathematics, you know, into physical shapes mm. to, to help kids learn it. But but you can take it even further than that. Uh, what if we begin to do all of our book dioramas on a 3D printer instead of, you know, the traditional ways that we do it? What if we begin to do some of our storytelling uh, using uh, 3D printing? Uh, so, yeah. you know, in my mind, it's it's a canvas for learning. It's, it's, it's a medium, and it's very empowering. And, and if nothing else, kids get it. And the fact is that we could potentially here impart a new kind of literacy that goes well beyond language and science and art, a literacy of creating and making and transforming ideas from virtual to physical in shapes and geometries that that I think could unleash a great deal of creativity. And again, you know, in many ways, not necessarily catapult us into the future, but bring us back into our craftsmanship roots of, of the, the pre-industrial revolution. Well, obviously, we're seeing all this fallout from people not getting it, or from people like trying to wrap their heads around this uh, around this technology. I mean, do you, from what experience you've had seeing kids in the classroom playing with it, do you find that I mean, they just instantly they understand what's happening? Kids get it in about 10 minutes. Yeah. 
they begin to teach each other. So you can see a lot of peer-to-peer learning. Mm. There are certainly in many instances light years ahead of their teachers and instructors, you know, so it kind of relegates the teachers and instructors more into the role of facilitators and coordinators because the kids really get it uh, very, very quickly. Uh, and with kids, there is no failure because they're, they're, they, they learn and they iterate and they teach mm-hmm. themselves and they teach each other and they progress very, very rapidly. And I can show you dozens of videos and studies mm-hmm. that we did, you know, all over the world, you know, in, in, in Singapore, in Chicago, in a refugee camp in, in, in Lebanon, uh, regardless of, of geography, language, age, they get it. It's it's kind of it's mm-hmm. like self-teaching a new kind of literacy. So so l- l- let me ask you real quick. And you, you mentioned IP a little bit before, and I know that you know there's this documentary coming out. They touch on it a little bit. Um, uh, we had an interesting experience on stage. There you know there was something happening in the background, and I'm just I'm uh, you know I'm wondering where you fall on the whole. Uh, this has been a huge issue with smartphones. That you know the patent wars right now, and it, you know do you think that we're in a place right now where um, these sorts of patents and patent litigations are going to stifle innovation moving ahead? Not so much. Uh, I mean, first, I, I personally uh, kind of uh, have evolved my thinking quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, to a point where I think that uh, we, we live in exponential times. Uh, product life cycles and patent life cycles in terms of the usefulness are going to compress, Mm. are compressing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for smart companies that innovate all the time, having a patent for 20 years is meaningless if the useful life of products is measured in in months and Mm -hmm. single years. Uh, And so uh, what we need to, to solve for is how do you give startups and uh, venture capitalists the safety mm-hmm. to, uh, to, to invest the capital necessary to innovate. How do you to, let people make money? And on yeah, because yeah. people want to harvest that yeah. uh, and at the same time allow for ecosystems of uh, crowdsourcing and collaboration. And I think that there are some real opportunities there. Uh, we're certainly, as 3D systems, are, are looking to innovate uh, and disrupt uh, using IP for the benefit mm-hmm. of us and others. Uh, and I've kind of come to the uh, view that uh, the current patent system is just antiquated. It's not going to mm-hmm. survive. Uh, it's going to be stressed and disrupted uh, and challenged uh, in many ways. Uh, and those all spell opportunities for forward thinkers so are, are they are they too broad you know are, 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 yeah. uh, th- that kind of takes care of itself over time yeah. because as fields of invention get crowded you know then then the, the claims get narrower and narrower but the question is uh, who benefits from patent protection in exponential mm-hmm. times where information is ubiquitous and technology progresses at lightning speed and how do you uh, create different monetization and protection opportunity that factors all of these new behaviors and information infrastructure in so that the companies that are first to market with new inventions have some advantage, Mm -hmm. but that other companies that want to uh, take it further could jump in earlier. And the first to solve that uh, is going to prosper. 
There you go. That was uh, Avi Reichenthal of 3D Systems. Uh, that was actually recorded the week of the Inside 3D Printing Show here in New York. So Avi was in town and very kindly uh, took a few minutes to sit down with me. Uh, those of you who know anything about my career outside of ROL know that I've been uh, very, very fascinated with uh, 3D printing for a while now and have been wanting to do uh, an ROL on that subject. And 3D Systems was, was actually a, a perfect fit, as we sort of alluded to during that conversation. The company was instrumental in helping found the technology. Uh, Stereolithography was invented by Chuck Hull um, at 3D Systems back in uh, 1986, and uh, now the company is really making a, a large push towards the consumer space. They're one of the uh, one of the leading companies uh, trying to get 3D printers out there into the hands of consumers. So uh, I. I really enjoyed that talk. I felt like that really encapsulated um, a lot of what's going on with 3D printing in a, a relatively short space of time. So uh, thanks so much to Avi for taking the time to do that. Uh, thanks to Alyssa at 3D Systems for setting that up. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks of course, to, to Brian. Thank him every week because he edits the podcast every week. Deserves a thank you. He works hard. Uh, thanks to Mark and everybody else at Boing Boing for hosting the podcast. Uh, we're very, very honored to be a part of the Boing Boing Podcast Network. Lots of great shows over there, and it seems like every single week that we do this, there's a, a brand new one to talk about. Uh, you can get all the shows if you go. Just go to. You can go to Boing Boing. Go to boingboing.net, and um, they're all up over there. You can go to iTunes. There's a really lovely designed uh, Boing Boing podcast page over there. Uh, and then while you're on iTunes, take the time to rate the show. Um, oh, also, uh, I've been putting the call out, so you know we're uh, we're getting very close to fifty episodes. I think we're about two off at this point, uh, and then once we hit fifty, I really want to do sort of a kind of a you know a, a, a briefer, you know, give people kind of a, a, a way of uh, way of getting into the show and picking a few of my favorite episodes. So if you have any favorites. Over the uh, the last fifty episodes, do do send me a line. It's riolcast at gmail dot com. You can just tweet me on the Twitter. It's at beheater. Um, so, uh, follow us on Tumblr. We've got a, a Tumblr. If you, it's uh, it's also riolcast. It's riolcast.tumblr.com. And if you follow us over there, you can actually get the shows um, hours, if not days, before they go up on iTunes and Boing Boing. As I mentioned, getting close to fifty episodes. Got a lot, a lot of shows lined up. Um, got about two months of shows lined up right now. So uh, I can. Um, I, yeah, I could very confidently say that we got uh, got a lot of good stuff coming up. So uh, I will uh, catch you roughly this time next week for another episode of RIYL.